The most talked-about government accountability office report in months confirmed what a lot of people suspected. Federal offices are largely unoccupied, a continuation of the situation during the pandemic. My next guest is the man behind that report. He's the GAO's acting director of physical infrastructure, David Maroney. Mr. Maroney, good to have you with us. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And let's start with the numbers. I think people were surprised at how unoccupied offices really were, thinking maybe, well, they're half full, three quarters full, but that's not what you found. That's right. So we looked at 24 headquarters buildings in the D.C. area, and what we found is all 24 had extra space. Most were using 25% or less of their capacity. So that's a pretty low utilization. But even on the range, if you're looking at all 24, it went from about 10% utilization to about 50%. So it's really a government-wide issue here. And did you look at government-owned buildings only, or were these some of these large lease spaces also? So most of them were owned headquarters buildings, but there are some that are leased. But regardless, across the board, you're saying the same utilization pattern. Right. You could probably project what's going on in headquarters to leased space that might be allied to an agency across town, in other words. Well, you could, as long as it was office space of the similar type, and again, headquarters function, so administrative, professional, policy kind of out. And to what extent do you understand or feel that this occupancy rate, 10 to 15 percent, you know, is across the nation, say, in other cities that have large federal presences? So it's hard to say. Once you get outside of D.C., the use of federal space varies. They can be labs, secure facilities. What I would say is if they're office spaces and performing similar functions, policy, administrative, it would likely be they have similar utilization rates. Wow. Were you a little bit surprised that it was that low? The numbers jump off the page. Uh, GEO has pointed out for years, 20 years at this point, about underused space in federal office buildings. So the fact that there was underused space was not surprising, but I agree. Uh, the number is kind of jumps off the page. Fair to say it wasn't 100% before the pandemic. Correct. It was not 100% before the pandemic. This has been a longstanding challenge agencies have dealt with that we have highlighted. But since the pandemic with the embrace of telework, it seems to have gone to a higher level. And what was your methodology? Did you simply poll the agencies or did you send some people to walk around and count cubicles or what? So we had a, at a high level, a two-step process. First, we gathered data on each of the headquarters buildings, their usable square footage. So that's places you can put people in desks, offices, team rooms, conference rooms, and then divided that by a GSA benchmark for how much space each person should have. And that gave us the capacity of the building, how many theoretically could be in that building on a given day. Step two was we collected in-office attendance data for a couple of weeks in January, February, and March and compared the capacity to say, okay, uh, how many people were actually using that space in this period of time? Got it. So just to validate the methodology, if a building could have X number of people, but that agency decided, well, we want to give our people 20% more than that because they want to you know, be able to eat their sardines and stretch their shoulders and stretch their arms out or whatever the case might be, then that would begin with a baseline of 80% in that building. Correct. That's a great way to look at it. It's So utilization is not the same as attendance. You could have a building that in theory could hold 1,000 people and only have 500 people assigned to it. So right off the bat, it's at 50% utilization. But this study was done I mean, what was the impetus here? Because you wanted to find out what's really going on in this post-pandemic era when there's this tug of war between agency management, the White House gently pulling on one end, and the employees and employee union groups and so forth pulling on the other end of the rope. 
Right. Well, a twofold reason for looking at this. First, as I mentioned, we've been looking at this for 20 years now as a, a problem. So we wanted to continue to highlight this challenge of unneeded space held onto by federal agencies. But secondly, post-pandemic, there's obviously been an embrace of hybrid work, of telework. And so we wanted to get a sense of what has changed? What does the picture look like now? Yes. And I wanted to ask you, too, whether there's any sense from this that if a given occupancy is 15 percent, does that mean that the same 15 percent are coming in every day and 85 percent of the employees don't or that 15 percent of the population happens to be in that building on a given day? Probably not within the scope. But do you have a sense of that? So that would vary by agency on how they collected their data. Some might have that ability because they're badging in, badging out. It identifies the person. Could be a variety of things. For our purposes, we were looking at how is the space being used, not attendance per se. Right. But at least the agencies know that much. That's kind of good news. Some likely do. Some may not. It depends. The quality of the data varies. Right. So some might be making nicely educated guesses and some might be counting the key pass tally. That is a fair statement. (laughs) We're speaking with David Maroney. He's acting director of physical infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. And so did you have any recommendations here? Now we know what the pig weighs. question is how to fatten it, thin it, slaughter it or what? So the key is for agencies to decide now. Take a hard look at their space needs and their plans going forward for in-office attendance and other factors and decide how much space do we really need and move in that direction. It's not going to be cost-free. It costs money to do any sort of consolidations, any disposals of properties, but it's important to move forward now. Yeah, consolidation has been a bugaboo for a long time, I think, across the government. And I guess our agencies may be reluctant to move into another building because it doesn't have their name across the skyline, like the Federal Trade Commission building. Well, the GAO's own building on the congressional side, you've got several tenants in there besides GAO. We do. And that is one of the challenges that officials identified is a sense of cultural reticence to giving up your own headquarters space or even within departments, bureaus giving up their own controlled space. But it's something that agencies should consider if it's going to make it more efficient. And as you noted at GEO headquarters, we already do that. We have a couple of agencies in our building, too. It can be done. Because if you look at like one of the pictures in the report was the Francis Perkins Labor Building, kind of a big nondescript block. It looks like a Dilbert building or something. And I don't know what the occupancy there was, but that looks like it could fit three other agents. If you've got agencies with 15 percent occupancy in a building like the Perkins Building, then you can get six agencies in there. Well, potentially. It's something the agencies should look at. I mean, part of it, too, is deciding what is their in-office attendance policy going to be going forward. That's going to help determine how much space they actually need. And then once they have that information, yeah, looking at options of consolidation, sharing space makes sense. Because in a building with low percentage of occupancy, that doesn't mean that the cost of the building is related to the occupancy. There's a certain base level to keep the thing, the pipes from freezing and the roof from caving in. I mean, they need maintenance whether there's anybody in there or not. Completely true. Cost money either to own buildings or to lease it. You have your lease cost, and that's going to take place whether or not people are at their desks. Environmental cost, too. takes a lot of energy to heat, cool, and light these buildings, and those operations are going to continue again whether someone's at their desk or not. And what's the reaction been so far? This report's only been out a couple weeks, I think, now, and I know it's gotten some attention on Capitol Hill. That's your client, ultimately, but also in a lot of other quarters. What about contractors that might be having to go in side by side with the different color badges in federal buildings? So in terms of contractors, they're actually in 
our numbers. We included mission-based contractors in our numbers. So that too plays into it. The agencies need to look at the overall picture. How many people are working in their building, not necessarily just federal staff, but working out of that space and how much is really needed, whether contractors or agency officials. Right. So there's a lot agencies can do without congressional action. If they wanted to consolidate, say, if a big unit of Health and Human Services said, we kind of like it being near the ramp to 395. We're going to move over to the Perkins building. They can just do that, right? Well, they can take steps in that direction. They can certainly identify the property. It takes money. So it's not as simple as, you know, today we make a decision, tomorrow we have to do it. There's a long time to get it through the process. And there's steps if you decide, for instance, to get rid of a property. uh, That's a complicated process too, which is all the more reason to take that hard look now and start making decisions because it does take time and money to get to that end state. Is there any possibility legally, I I guess I would ask, of federal space being leased out to commercial tenants? I keep using that poor old Francis Perkins building, but suppose a law firm wanted to move in there. Would that be possible legally? So it depends on the situation. Uh, There have been examples where the federal government has uh, leased out federal properties that have been vacated. So there are a couple of hotels in D.C. where that has been the case. So there is some possibilities. I wouldn't be able to speak to every legal situation, but there have been some examples where that's been used. Yeah. So where do we go from here with this report? I mean, it's out there and it is what it is to use the common vernacular, but nobody seems to be acting. So we'll be keeping an eye on this, uh, and I know Congress will as well. We just had a hearing last week at the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee to take a look at this. And we have ongoing work. We'll keep on the focus on what are agencies now doing to make these decisions about their space needs uh, and keep it on the front burner. And would you be able to answer the main cosmic question, which everybody has, and there seems to be some universal resonance going on here, and that is that the traffic in and out of D.C. at rush hours, which is most of the day, is absolutely terrible, and yet nobody's going to work. Can you explain that one? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could, Tom. It's the same here in Atlanta where I'm based, so I cannot say. All right. Well, I'm going to keep asking everyone that might know. David Maroney is Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive at your dining room table or wherever. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president 
I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chance that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones 
that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me. Uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career. You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when, and when I was born, 
right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.